Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Arrested development there. Fishing for religion for after four. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. A huge thanks to Matt for an awesome burning vinyl. I'm here till five o'clock on In Your Face. Up real soon at 14, I'll be joined by LGBTIQ policy guru, Alistair Lowry. He, uh, he's a real policy expert. He's also a blogger. Uh, and he'll be talking about the Senate inquiry into our religious schools discriminating against LGBTIQ students and whether or not the Sex Discrimination Act should be amended to remove their capacity to do so. We'll also be talking to Ari Dumphy from Queer Space at Drummond Street. They recently presented a paper at this awesome conference in Sydney called Better Together. And their paper was about non-binary people and transitioning issues. And they'll also be chatting to us about pronouns uh, in the gender diverse community as well. So lots to look forward to here on In Your Face. Alrighty, in the meantime, here is Massive Attack with their classic protection. Massive attack there with their classic protection. 11 after 4, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, the Australian Senate is conducting an inquiry as to whether the Sex Discrimination Act should be amended to eliminate religious schools' capacities to discriminate against LGBTIQ students on the basis of their sexual orientation, gender identity or intersex status. On the line, we have LGBTIQ policy wonk expert guru Alastair Lowry. He joins us from Sydney. Welcome, Alastair. Thanks very much for having me. So, Alistair, give us uh, a summary about why the Senate is holding this inquiry. Sure. Uh, so, in October last year, we had a leaking of the recommendations of the Religious Freedom Review, and in the subsequent public debate, there was a, a significant backlash to the idea that religious schools should be able to continue to discriminate against LGBT students and teachers. In the wake of that, both the government and opposition publicly stated that they would introduce legislation to remove the ability of religious schools to discriminate against LGBT students at at a minimum. So you would think that by the end of last year, Parliament would have been able to pass that legislation. Unfortunately, politics being what it is, that didn't happen. And so where we are now is that there's a bill being put forward by the Labor Party, uh, which would amend the Sex Discrimination Act to prevent religious schools from being able to discriminate against LGBT students, but not teachers. And on the other side, we have a series of amendments from the government that would actually allow that discrimination to continue, just in different ways. Currently, the Senate Standing Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs is conducting an inquiry into the Labor Bill and the amendments, uh, and is calling for submissions, and they close this coming Monday, 21st of January. What does the evidence tell us about uh, the rates of uh, discrimination in religious schools towards queer students? I'm not sure that uh, I have the evidence of the the rates. I think what we need to be clear, though, is a lot of this debate has been about whether religious schools will expel a student because they are um, lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender. Uh, What we're talking about really is a a lot more uh, 
a lot broader types of discrimination that religious schools can and, and sometimes do do um, in terms of gender identity and sexual orientation, and that can be prohibiting same-sex relationships, pressuring uh, LGBT students not to LGBT students not to bring a same-sex partner to their formal, other forms of discipline. So we have to be careful that the debate doesn't get narrowed to the right to religious schools to expel students, but talks more broadly about all the different ways in which religious schools can awfully currently mistreat LGBT students. Are you disappointed the inquiry doesn't include discrimination towards teachers in religious schools as part of its terms of reference? Is this a, a missed opportunity? So the terms of reference talks about the Labor Sex Discrimination Amendment Bill um, and also amendments to it. And one of those amendments is actually from uh, Senator Janet Rice of the Greens and it would amend the Sex Discrimination Act to also prohibit um, the right of religious schools to discriminate against LGBT teachers, um, which is obviously welcome. The situation with um, teachers, though, is slightly more complicated because the Fair Work Act also allows religious organisations, including religious schools, to discriminate against LGBT teachers uh, and also needs to be amended. If the Sex Discrimination Act is changed, to what extent would it override laws in some states that enable religious schools to discriminate against students who are queer? The positive thing about fixing the Sex Discrimination Act federally is that it would apply in all states and territories. So discrimination law can operate and exist alongside each other at state and territory level and also Commonwealth level. So currently, you actually have a range of jurisdictions which have already prohibited discrimination against LGBT students and a couple who permitted discrimination against LGBT teachers. So the ACT um, has recently joined Tasmania in banning both types of discrimination. But on the other hand, you have places like New South Wales or Victoria where both the state legislation and the Commonwealth legislation allows discrimination against both LGBT students and teachers um, to continue. So what you really need is at least one of those uh, to be changed. And in this case, if you change the Sex Discrimination Act, you allow people in any state or territory to bring a complaint to the Human Rights Commission. So how should LGBTIQ folks respond to this inquiry if they're thinking about making a submission? I know time's running out, the deadline's Monday the 21st of January. Are personal testimonies about discrimination that they experienced as a student or teacher in a religious school the way to go? Like, how would you recommend people respond? Uh, I think absolutely the most important submission or testimony to this inquiry would be from people who have direct experience of discrimination by religious schools, and that can be current or former LGBT students, it can be members of rainbow families who've been discriminated against, it can be teachers who uh, have been discriminated against or are currently employed in religious schools and not comfortable in being out about who they are because of the fear of discrimination. Um, but even if you don't have an experience of a religious school or don't have an experience of uh, discrimination by a religious school, you can still write a submission calling for the parliament to pass legislation to get rid of the ability of religious schools to discriminate against LGBT students and teachers. Um, so I've put together a how-to guide um, to allow people or to encourage people to make submissions either based on personal stories or based on uh, the substance of the amendment bill and amendments. Uh, and you can find that at alistairlaurie.net. So who's on this Senate committee and what political dog whistles have, have they been giving, if any, on how they view this issue? Like any... Senate committee, there are going to be supportive senators and other senators who are, are less supportive of that community. 
Um, but I don't think we should be focused on that as much as making the strongest possible argument, uh, not just to the committee, but to the parliament more broadly about why this discrimination is unacceptable and why it needs to go. Um, so the Senate committee is obviously an important part of the process, but we also have a federal election at some point in the next four months. And so this debate optimistically could be resolved before the election with the passage of legislation or pessimistically might not be addressed before the election. And so this is a public argument that we need to be making. So every student has the right to learn in school without fear of discrimination on the basis of who they are. Every teacher should be hired on their ability to do their job, not on the basis of who they love or how they identify. It's Mm. pretty simple. And that's what our parliament should be doing. To what extent do you think, though, that this issue may not see the light of day in terms of, like, you know, a bill being debated this term of Parliament? Uh, There's talk of Morrison calling a federal election after Australia Day. To what extent do you think this is really just Labor's mess to clean up um, when they presumably form government in the not-too-distant future? Uh, I'm I'm not going to speculate about when elections might be or who might win. Uh, I think this is everybody's responsibility in our Parliament Every person who's elected to represent their constituents should be representing all of them, and that includes the LGBT students in religious schools uh, right around the country. So I would hope and implore those elected representatives to do their job and to try and make sure that these are safe and inclusive learning environments. Nobody should be excluded uh, or treated badly just because of who they are. Uh, Our parliamentarians have an opportunity to fix that. I'd like them to do that next month. They should be able to do that next month. Whether they do is up to them. How do you think this issue would play out in the House of Representatives, though? I mean, obviously, uh, the government doesn't have the numbers in the Senate. This is you know, a, a Labor-dominated, if you like, Senate committee. Um, you know, so the Senate recommendations from this uh, inquiry presumably will go to the House of Reps at some point. Let's say for argument's sake they go to the House of Reps before the election. Um, will the government just basically ignore it? Uh, will there be a political impasse on the issue because the two sides are so different insofar as how they view this issue politically? I know Morrison's talked about, you know, we need to stop... Um, kids from being discriminated against, but it almost seems mealy-mouthed to me because he keeps flip-flopping on this issue. I think the numbers are tight in both chambers. So one of the reasons why the Senate didn't pass this bill in uh, late last year was because the Centre Alliance actually supported one of the government's amendments, at the time supported one of the government's amendments, that would have made... um, would have undermined the entire purpose of the bill. And so the Labor Party and uh, Greens didn't push for the debate at that time with the hope through this inquiry and through persuasion to convince the Centre Alliance not to support that. Um, So I think even in the House of Reps, the numbers now are a lot closer and a lot more fluid. So it really is up to every member of the chamber, both uh, including the government, the opposition, the Greens and the crossbench, to think about what is best for LGBT students and teachers and schools generally to make sure that they are inclusive for everyone. To what extent do you think this whole debate is just, you know, round two, if you like, of the culture war that, you know, emerged, you know, before and during the marriage equality debate? I mean, it almost seems as if, you know, teachers and students really are playing second fiddle to that. I think that the role of LGBT people in education, whether that's a student or teachers or uh, safe schools or um, anything else to do with education, has been politicised for a very long time. Um, and I think that Sadly, that's going to continue for some time, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that 
permission allowed to continue for as long as the, the Commonwealth Government or the state and territory governments where that discrimination um, is still lawful allows it to. How active is the Australian Christian lobby in pushing the government uh, to toe its line on this particular issue? And do you think their power has, has you know, decreased since their crushing defeat on marriage equality? I haven't really been paying attention to what the, the Australian Christian lobby has been doing because what it says on these types of things are entirely predictable. I think the most concerning part about this debate is probably what's going on behind closed doors by religious school systems. And what is going on behind closed doors? Like, what are they saying? Uh, Well, I think we can see it in the government amendments that they put forward, that while they would allow the uh, direct discrimination in Section 38 of the Sex Discrimination Act to be removed, that the government is proposing to allow different types of discrimination in other sections of the Act uh, to continue. So um, under the, the kind of misnomer of religious freedom but really you know, special rights to discriminate against LGBT people, the government is proposing that the Sex Discrimination Act be amended to allow that discrimination to continue just in other ways. Have any religious schools or any denominations actually spoken out against religious schools who are discriminating against against students? Like, um, are you disappointed that perhaps there hasn't been more criticism from the religious community towards you know, those of its brethren who are perhaps, you know, more kind of, you know, bigoted? There have been a range of principals and schools who've spoken out, uh, particularly since the Ruddick Review recommendations were leaked in October, uh, saying that they not only didn't want the legal right to discriminate, they thought that the legal right to discriminate should be removed for everyone uh, and they they should be commended. Um, And so I don't think it's fair to say that all religious orders or or religious um, denominations are calling for these rights to be continued. Um, And I think that even within religious communities, there has been a backlash to proposals to continue discrimination. So that late last year, there was a letter from um, the Anglican Church or a group of Anglican Church schools, basically implying that they would like the ability to discriminate to continue. And School communities and ex-students uh, and even some current students of that school said, actually, that's not good enough. So this is a debate that is still happening within religious communities as well as within the LGBT community and for everyone, which is partly why we had such a huge backlash in October, that I think most parents in the community think that their kids should be able to go to school uh, in a, a safe and inclusive environment, and they probably think that should be the same for everyone's kids, whether they're straight, cisgender, or LGBT. You mentioned the Ruddick Review. Of course, the Morrison government finally released it. They put it out just before Christmas. Uh, what was your response to the Ruddick Review? Uh, were there any recommendations in it that surprised you? It, it wasn't necessarily a, a surprise, given um, the recommendations themselves had been leaked by the, the Sydney Morning Herald in October. Um, I think there are were, there were some things that are welcome, and there are some things that are of concern. So on the welcome side, uh, I would actually support the proposals to introduce uh, religious belief or lack of religious belief as a protected attribute in anti-discrimination law. It currently doesn't exist at Commonwealth level uh, or in New South Wales or in South Australia. And I think that religious minorities should be uh, protected against discrimination on the basis of who they are. Um, On the other hand, there's a proposal now by the government in the response to the Ruddick Review to refer the issue of religious exceptions 
it really isn't that complicated. We have states like Tasmania and more recently the ACT who have a best practice approach to this issue who um, other states should be looking to and uh, adopting that. So we don't really need for that issue to go to the Law Reform Commission for, for 12 or 18 months. Um, and the second is any talk about national consistency in that context really puts the threat that perhaps we would be talking about the Commonwealth overriding the best practice approach of those jurisdictions and sending LGBT students and teachers backwards in those places where discrimination has already been removed. Alastair Lowry, thanks for your insights. Thanks so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Thank you very much for having me. Alastair Lowry there talking about the Senate inquiry into the amendment or possible amendment of the Sex Discrimination Act uh, and whether religious schools' capacities under that act to discriminate against LGBTIQ students should be removed. And if you want to make a submission, submissions are due on Monday, but you can go to alastairlowry.com for his how-to guide. 28 after 4, you are on In Your Face on 3CR, and here is Shakona Yu. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. On sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. G'day, this is Jacob from Friday Rave. If the week's politics have left you wondering whether it's you or the rest of the planet that's gone completely and utterly bonkers, join us at 5 o'clock each and every Friday for a Friday Rave here on 3CR, where we'll do our best to reassure you that it is actually you, and us. A Friday Rave, bringing the 5 o'clock drinks debrief to you, here on Community Radio 3CR. Chronically Chilled, a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. It's 25 to 5. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Ari Dumphy is a counsellor at Queerspace. Ari is a non-binary person and specialises in counselling and supporting trans adults and young people and their families. Last week, Ari gave a presentation at the awesome Better Together conference in Sydney about non-binary perspectives on transition. Ari, welcome to 3CR. It's great to have you on board. Thanks, James. Nice to be here. So what are the themes around gender transition for non-binary people that you discussed at Better Together? Yeah, well, I guess the presentation was largely based on my master's research. So I interviewed um, a few seven non-binary people, but it's also based on kind of my counselling work and my own lived experience as well. And what I found was that almost every non-binary person that I've spoken to about 
their gender transition have experienced um, basically like pressures to align with a binary gender. Um, and so what I was presenting on was really the nuances and complexities of that pressure and kind of termed it as a demand for a binary gender because it has felt quite forceful to people. And then the different ways that people have kind of responded to that pressure. So that might be different ways that they resist that, maybe through constant disclosure of their gender identity or their pronouns, um, ways that they've used language creatively um, to kind of work around that or concessions that they've made around the pronouns that they ask for or the way that they present um, aesthetically and, you know, again, like defiance. So the ways that people have reclaimed words like freak or monster even and use humour to kind of combat some of the, um, that, that pressure and kind of humour to look at um, and kind of, I guess, make fun of how rigid the gender binary can really be. So that really lays a great foundation, those ways of resisting, um, for example. You know, that lays a great foundation for transposing all of that into activism and, you know, changing mm. the service sector. Yeah. Yeah. So how can people take those themes forward? Like, you know, if they want to be a, an activist in that area, you know, how should they take those themes forward? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's complex and I suppose starting with how, making space for more meaningful, nuanced inclusion of non-binary people and content. So if you're organising a forum or a conference, having someone speak to the experience of non-binary people that isn't just, I guess, a tack-on to, um, to other trans content, um, creating opportunities in workplaces or in group cultures to, um, for people to disclose their pronouns. So that might be forms or it might be um, that you know, integrating um, a process of disclosing, everyone disclosing their pronouns, so even if they don't use they, them pronouns and other gender-neutral pronouns, making a practice of um, disclosing their pronouns, even if they be she, her or he, him, um, as a way of creating an environment that's much more friendly to non-binary people, I guess, um, yeah, proactively accepting gender-neutral pronouns. So if someone says, they go by they, them, or she, her. Often it can be good practice just to go with they, them, because some of what came out of the research was that people kind of um, often make concessions in advance, I guess learned, um, learned anticipation of being disregarded in wanting gender-neutral pronouns. And so I guess, yeah, proactively um, supporting those choices um, and thinking about the assumptions that I guess we all can make at times about what kind of a transition is a successful transition or what is a complete transition. Is they the best uh, pronoun for a non-binary person um, or do you think another word will emerge? Do you have any thoughts mm. on that? At this point, it seems that most people in Australia that are um, wanting gender-neutral pronouns are going by they-them pronouns kind of because that's sort of the easiest thing. It's already a word that exists in the English language. There are other pronouns like Z or there was at one point people using they, them, but without the TH, so AM. But, you know, it's difficult enough, I think, for a lot of people to get uh, others in their life to use gender-neutral pronouns. And so going with something that's already in 
the vernacular um, is often what's happening at the moment, but I really can't say. And always, of course, going with what a person says that they want for themselves is what's the most affirming thing for them. How does Australia compare to, say, other you know, Western nations in terms of its um, activism and its its kind of acceptance of, of non-binary people? Um, and I guess that kind of, you know, relates to language as well. Are mm. there other countries, for example, that, that seem to be you know, more advanced and better at dealing with pronouns for non-binary people than, say, we are here? Mm. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's, that's a really complex question. I think it yeah. depends on where you are in Australia. Um, as with most countries, I imagine. But certainly, you know, gender has been understood differently through time and culture. And so often there are cultures where, um, you know, trans people and non-binary people aren't really considered to be the anomaly to an otherwise um, dominant way of understanding gender. But with the, um, I guess, different processes of colonisation that Western um, culture has... uh, imparted, I suppose is a silly way of saying that, Um, often those um, trans or non-binary aspects of other cultures have been the first to be erased. And so I think that Western, often Western cultures assume that they're the most advanced in this area, but actually that's often not true. And there are many languages where there are gender-neutral pronouns that are... um, already integrated into the language or that perhaps there isn't even gendered pronouns at all. So, yeah, it's really, really different and language informs knowledge so much. And so at this point, English is quite limited in some ways and people do get creative with those limitations. Obviously, non-binary people have existed forever, but why do you think the community's been emerging so strongly and clearly in the last few years? What do you think the catalysts have been for that? Yeah, um, I think a big one is the internet for especially young people. Getting to see other people that you relate to is a, is a massive factor. But also people do ask that question a lot. Why are there more non-binary people now? And obviously you said that there aren't. Non-binary people have been around and existed forever, really, as far as you know, um, social history can say. And also, I think it's important to say that people are more able to come to think of themselves as non-binary if there's a cultural precedent for its possibility. Um, and that reminds me of a quote, a beautiful quote, that's you only realise what's been forbidden when it's finally permitted. And I love that quote to explain kind of how important representation is, not just in um, not just in um, people being able to see others like them, but being able to see others who are unlike anyone else so that they know they can be unlike anyone else as well, if that makes sense. Certainly does. Are there any other points in history where you know non-binary people have had a, a, a big visible presence, and there's been that kind of you know emerging community? Are we kind of you know, for instance, going through a cycle perhaps that we've been at kind of before in our history? Um, mm. Any thoughts on that? I mean. I'm definitely not a historian, so but there is a wonderful book called Transgender Warriors by Leslie Feinberg, which is a lot about that. Um, but at the same time, I do think that the last few hundred years have been a particularly conservative time for gender. Um, and so we are improving at the moment, say, in Melbourne, Australia, I think, um, on a gender front. But that's an improvement that's kind of um, remedying 
a particularly conservative, um, conservative approach to gender. That hasn't always been the case, for sure. You talked before about the pressures that non-binary people experience to identify and you know describe themselves according to a binary gender. Um, mm. I imagine that's pretty strong from the medical community. How does that manifest from the medical community? What are some of the common pressures that, that people you know feel in that area? Yeah, I mean, many of the people that I interviewed spoke about having to lie to their doctors and medical professionals um, because they were concerned or felt that they wouldn't receive approval for um, medical affirmation processes if they said that they had a non-binary identity or a way of being in the world. And certainly that's my experience counselling people who are going through that process. Um, For instance, I guess one... um, one thing might be that, you know, someone might be an effeminate transmasculine person going to a psychiatrist for a diagnosis and the psychiatrist says, so um, on a scale of super feminine to super masculine, where do you think you are? And that person says, well, I guess I'm about 40-60 or 50-50 on that. Um, and even sometimes they might say that they're, you know, a feminine transmasculine person and so... I've heard of instances where that psychiatrist, not understanding that femininity and masculinity are not um, womanhood or manhood that's quite separate, will then say, okay, so you're not sure if you're trans and won't give them an approval. And so there's this, there's a lot of like myths about, I guess, what a binary, what a trans person can be. And it's really informed by, um, I guess, rigid and binary concepts of gender. Do um, non-binary people often experience, um, I guess, treatment from the psychiatric community as if being non-binary is is an illness? Is is mm. that is that old one that old onion still still prevalent? I am more familiar with just being treated as if you're confused or um, unsure or haven't really you're not ready to have the process that you're saying that you want to have because you haven't. I guess, found a stable way of being. And I think there's a, there's a, particularly for people who are gender fluid in that um, their non-binary identity is kind of more a one of moving between different ways of expressing themselves or different ways of identifying. Um, they might have a very stable wish for um, surgery or um, hormone replacement therapy, but have an unstable sense of whether or not they want to present as uh, masculine and feminine. And it's interesting because psychologically speaking, we encourage people to be flexible in their um, self-concept in every other way. But when it comes to gender, we expect people to be very rigid um, or very stable in that. And often it's not a problem for the individual that they have a flexible um, or expansive view of their own gender. But for the, for the medical industry, I think people get very anxious and nervous about giving approval um, in those instances because they don't quite understand the ways that gender can be taken up in in more fluid ways. I guess, too, non-binary people must experience a lot of pressures from within the LGBTIQ community as well. Can you tell us about how some of those pressures are expressed? Mm, Yeah, sometimes that's true, and I think um, it's difficult to really... uh, It's difficult to not absorb some of the cultural um, understandings of gender, and the LGBTIQ community is not immune from that. And so I guess some of the ways that people talk about that happening is... um, in particularly how trans people and non-binary trans people might be affirmed. So they might be affirmed from their peers or from, you know, LGBTIQ service sector workers or whatever when they present, um, again, like in a hyper-masculine, hyper-feminine 
way, even if they are non-binary, and even if it's not really... So, say, a trans a feminine person, a person assigned male at birth um, who's non-binary might be really affirmed and complimented when they come to work or go out and visit their friends when they're in frocked up in a dress or um, in femme clothes. But then if they want to wear a T-shirt and pants, which, of course, aren't inherently gendered, um, they will maybe receive questions about, you know, why they're not expressing themselves on that particular day or being themselves when actually, you know, cis women are, um, of course, able to wear pants and T-shirts and that's not a problem. So there's this total double standard of what um, what's appropriate and even like I'm using the word trans femininity and trans masculinity and that's something that's very common in the community um, and they're useful terms because they are more inclusive than trans women and trans men um, they do they are intended to include non-binary genders however it's still defining a person based on that so I would be considered trans masculine but masculinity isn't necessarily what defines me and certainly I like to um, express in feminine ways where possible as well, so long as I, my non-binary gender won't be dismissed in that case. And so that's, uh, uh, I feel like those words are um, really convenient. But again, you don't want to assume that people want to use that language for themselves as well. Absolutely. Now, peer support is um, a, a huge part of, I guess, service provision for the LGBTIQ community. You're from Queer Space at Drummond Street. What support okay. services do they offer for the uh, non-binary community in particular? Yeah, so we do um, counselling and casework. Um, we have quite a few different programs. We do, at the moment, we're focusing quite a lot on working with families of trans and gender diverse people, um, as well as... Um, you know, individuals themselves who can receive support, but knowing that, I guess, um, or we noticed that there was a lot, a lot of people on the waiting list who were wanting support around how to support their family members or um, children, and so we've got the village, which is a group, which is a group for um, parents of young trans and gender diverse people, and we've also got a program starting up soon, which is a uh, family mentoring program, so families who are a little bit further along on their process of supporting their young person, and that will be probably mainly trans people, but not necessarily. It could be other LGBT, other LGB people um, as well. Will then be paired with a mentee family to kind of help them through that process. And so, I guess we respond to what's what we're seeing in the waiting list and what we're um, noticing is needed. And at the moment, those are some of the things as well. Yeah. And also that those those approaches would break down the isolation that so many people you know would experience, and of course that isolation, I guess you know for so many people is a is a major source of you know distress and 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 health issues really. Yeah, absolutely, and we know that people who don't have the support of their families are much 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 more likely to um, have poor mental health outcomes and um, self harm or suicidality. So it's really considered, I guess, a um, suicide prevention program to support the, the families through that and have them kind of hopefully accelerate their process from being one of um, toleration or acceptance to them really affirming and even advocating for the young person because that's really the role that a family um, needs to take is one of advocacy, especially if the young person is properly young. So it's important. 
Ari, thank you so much for sharing your insights, your wealth of experience. It's been really fascinating chatting with you today on 3CR. Thank you so much. Thanks, James. The wonderful Ari Dumphy there from Queer Space at Drummond Street at 6 to 5. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and here's Stu Thomas. Thanks to our guests. Thank you to Elstead Lowry and to Ari Dumphy from Queer Space. We'll be back next week on In Your Face. Have an awesome weekend. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.